Welcome to No Higher Calling Family. I'm Simeon. And I'm Brittany. As we seek to reflect Christ in our marriage and parent our children in a world defined by compounded confusion, we desire to anchor our hearts to the truths of God's Word. Join us on our journey. We hope to encourage you in your calling and equip you to pass truth to the next generation. Hello and welcome to the No Higher Calling family. We're going to be looking at another couple today. We're looking forward to getting into it. Hopefully you're enjoying these episodes. The first month we did Elimelech and Naomi. Second month, Lot and Mrs. Lot because she's nameless. And now we're looking at Jacob and Leah, um, which I think is probably an odd couple to hear their names because you always think of Jacob and Rachel. But Jacob didn't just have Rachel. Jacob first had Leah. So as we are studying through these unconventional, undesirable couples of the Bible, uh, we decided to take the Jacob and Leah approach on this one. Yeah, I think one thing that is interesting is that with what we typically call the patriarchs, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three of them had some serious marital things going on. And um, and Jacob is is no exception. His story really starts clean back with the famous Jacob and Esau story, and he runs from his life from his brother, and his mom sends him to her brother, and that is kind of where we'll kind of pick up the story a bit today because it has a lot to do with um, his mother's brother, whose name was Laban. And, uh, well, Laban was a lot like Jacob in all the wrong ways. And um, so, yeah, as we get into that, we'll kind of see some of the seed things that are going on in the background and begin to understand why this particular marriage got a really, really rocky start. And it didn't, you know, from a from a worldly perspective, this marriage didn't stand a chance, you know, um, from the get go. It was it was rough. But um, there are little glimpses of times in which you can see that God is working and desired to make this thing work. Well, it's really interesting when you come to this. I'm a romantic at heart. So this starts with this just captivating love story of Jacob falling head over heels for Rachel, working seven years for her, but it seemed like just a day. He was so in love with her. And then when she finally is about to become his, enter this tragic, heartbreaking, I mean, emotionally wrenching love story. Of Jacob and Leah, where we see Leah desiring Jacob's affection. Um, it looks like scripture reads that she loved Jacob and she wanted his love in return, but really she just got his disdain. And again and again, Leah goes through just one embarrassing situation to the next, one rejecting situation to the next, living a life of loneliness, of comparison, of always being less than. Um, and then, you know, Rachel comes back on the scene, but that love story is not as beautiful and innocent as it looked like at the beginning. Now it's just, it's tainted. It's tainted by the sin that happened in this family. So it's just, I feel like it pulls your heart in so many directions. But as we hone in on Jacob and Leah, I think really the overarching thing is we just get a glimpse into someone who is in an unhappy marriage, someone who's stuck in an unhappy marriage, um, an unfulfilling and unsatisfying marriage. Um, and we're going to kind of come around full circle at the end and talk about that a little bit more. Um, but let's just kind of lay some of the groundwork we're picking up in Genesis 29. So the backstory here is that Jacob is at a well and he is asking the people around the well where he can find his mother's family because that's where she sent him. And they point out Rachel, who happened to be coming at that very moment, um, out to the well. They point out Rachel and they say, you know, this is the daughter of your mother's brother, essentially. And Jacob, as soon as he sees her, it says that he cried aloud. I mean, he was, I think he just was so infatuated with her immediately. And um, when Laban brings him into his home at first, it's very much like, oh, I'm going to take care of this person who's my relative. And in verse number 14, Laban said unto him, Surely thou art bone and uh, my bone and my flesh. And he abode with him the space of a month. 
which seems like a really long time for us, but that's a pretty normal thing for them to keep somebody for a long time because people had to travel a long way. So if you kept somebody for a month, that was like a normal visit time uh, for a family member to come into a city to visit you. In about this time, Jacob or Laban offers to Jacob, he says, because you're my brother, should, he says, uh, verse 15, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me what thy wages, what shall thy wages be? So Jacob and him have obviously had a conversation. Jacob's going to work for him, and he wants to know what he's going to pay him. Laban, as we're going to find out, is a shrewd and frankly slimy businessman, and he is doing anything he can to profit himself. In fact, he's a whole lot like Jacob because he's a deceiver. So what we have is a gentleman's agreement between Laban and Jacob that Jacob is going to serve Laban for seven years. And the only thing he asks for is for his daughter's hand in marriage. Now, remember, this is a time in which a dowry was paid typically. So Jacob is essentially working off his dowry so that he can marry Rachel. And he loves Rachel. And it says in verse 16, and Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. And then it describes them and it says, Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. So that phrase, tender-eyed, I always had a misconception that that meant that, you know, she may not have been as beautiful as her sister, but she had a, you know, a kind disposition or something like that. But that word actually doesn't mean that. It translates literally to weak eyes. It has to do with, that she wasn't strong to look at. In other words, she wasn't beautiful like her sister was. It's Moses's kind way of saying that she wasn't very good to look at. Okay, so tender-eyed doesn't mean that she, uh, what it doesn't mean what we would think of in the English sense of it. It means that she really wasn't that pretty. doesn't mean that she was ugly. just means that she wasn't beautiful like her sister was. Um, and so In verse 18, it says, And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And then, interestingly enough, in verse 20, it says, And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love that he had for her. So this is obviously someone who is completely infatuated with this girl, uh, Rachel. Well, come to find out that Laban is not exactly an honest human. And... Jacob works for him for seven years. When the time is up, Jacob has to come and beg to get married to his wife. And Laban finally gathers everybody together. He makes a big feast. And then in the custom of the day, they got married and then under cover of darkness and under a veil, most likely, Leah and Jacob are married. And Jacob doesn't know that it's Leah. And when he wakes up the next morning, he looks over and sees his new bride, and it's not the woman that he was promised. I've been kind of using as a resource as we've been studying through this, the books Her Name is Woman by Jean Carson, I guess is how you would pronounce her name. Um, But I'm going to read just these two paragraphs, how she describes this, because again, it's just that heart-wrenching emotional drama that is unfolding here. But uh, she says, Leah's illusions had fallen to pieces, totally broken. The few hours of darkness which now lay behind her had been the happiest of her life. Hoping against hope, she had lain quietly, savoring what she knew might be short-lived happiness. While she surrendered herself to the love of her bridegroom, at the same time she dreaded the hour of truth. She feared the break of day. The hour came slowly. The first sunbeam striped the earthen tent floor. Then her bridegroom woke up and saw her, his bride. The disappointment she had anticipated, she had not had enough courage to prepare him, darted across his face. Her husband Jacob expected her sister Rachel to be beside him, the woman he had loved from the very first moment he had seen her seven long years ago. For Rachel he had worked, had hoped, and had dreamed. With Rachel he had expected to pass his night after the wedding. Jacob had thought only of one woman, Rachel. He looked sleepily at Leah and then screamed as the truth rudely awakened him. I just, I read that and I was just... It's so sad. It is so tragic. And, you know, I mean, Leah is a part of this 
you know, kind of conspiracy against Jacob. So in some ways, you know, she had a chance to tell him at the beginning before she subjected herself to all of this. But yet this was also a culture where women didn't defy the authority of the male figure, especially the patriarch of the home. Um, So anyway, there's just a lot of just messed up stuff going on in this story. Um, But here we see, I've heard it said before, that the deceiver was deceived. Simeon mentioned earlier, but rewind the clock. Um, Jacob means deceiver, surplanter. He deceived Esau out of the birthright. Um, and he, he might his father out of the blessing as well. Yeah, and he might have thought then, you know, that I got away with it. But you can't. You can choose your sin, but you can't choose the consequences of your sin. And you cannot escape the consequences of your sin. You may escape it for a time, or you may escape it the entire time that you're in, on Earth. But there is a reckoning day coming, whether that happens on Earth or whether that happens in eternity. Yeah, and I think. You can't, like she said, you you can't choose the consequence of your sin. And not that Leah herself was a punishment to Jacob. I don't don't necessarily think that that's entirely the case, but it is the case that you reap what you sow. And in Jacob's case, he sowed a lot of deceit, and he ended up being deceived, you know? And I, I have to wonder, too, Jacob's mother sent him to her family. She must have known what Laban was like, you know? And she probably thought to herself, oh, the two of them will get along great, you know, because they're both deceivers. And in the end, it ended up hurting her son. And so that that kind of, we have to be careful. But the other thing I wanted to mention was that you come into a marriage with a certain amount of personal baggage. Both parties do. And when you get married, you have your own history and they have their own history and you become one. From that moment on, you have to put those things aside in a way. You have to deal with them personally. Um, but you have to also realize, okay, I'm married to this person. And no matter what their history, whatever their baggage, whatever is going on in the past, we have to work forward now. And I think one of the hardest things that should have happened in Jacob's life, in my opinion, is he should have taken his new wife and left. And went home um, at this point. Now, it would have been, we wouldn't have had Joseph, and we wouldn't have had all these other things. So God had things in mind, but, um, well, you God know. God can work in spite of right. <laughs> our choosing other paths. It's, it's clear from Scripture, in my opinion, that God never intended people to have more than one spouse um, outside of a death or something like that. So... For him to get married again, I think is clearly a bad idea. Um, so when he was deceived, you know, I hate to say it this way, but in a way it's kind of tough luck. You know, this is the scenario you're now in. You're now married and you have a responsibility to take care of this woman, regardless of the fact that you were deceived and tricked. And um, it's time to move forward. But that's that's not what happens. Instead, they have all of these unresolved issues and they push ahead and they don't deal with those unresolved issues and it continues to cause problems all throughout their marriage. And there's a lot of wisdom about this in Proverbs. I don't have it all prepared in front of me, but it's just coming to mind now um, about not letting the sun go down on your wrath and not being an angry person and not holding on to bitterness and not, and in, and in the life of Jacob and Leah, you see that play out for years go on and on and on with this ongoing bitterness between the two of them. Jacob, in my opinion, we'll get into it in a minute, but I believe he neglects her as a husband. So after all of that goes down, Jacob goes back to Laban, and he's obviously angry, and rightfully so, um, because he's been lied to and cheated. And Laban gives him an excuse about that being their custom to give the firstborn daughter first, which... I think is a bunch of nonsense. There may be a, been a, there may have been some kind of custom about that, but um, if it was a custom in the sense that like, oh, this is the normal way that we do things here, Jacob would have been aware of that. I yeah, mean, he would have known that. It would have Jacob been a would have known thing. that, and Laban wouldn't have promised his younger daughter first in the first place. Yeah, if he had no intention. I think what happened is over the seven years, as the seven years are coming to a close, Laban starts to think. 
I'm about to lose my free labor and my older daughter is still not married and perhaps she's not the prettiest girl on earth. It might take me a while to marry her off. Maybe he's using this to his advantage. Like I said, I think he was a pretty slimy guy and he's just trying to get everything he can out of it. And so he tricks Jacob into marrying his older daughter and he knows that Jacob's not going to go anywhere as long as he can't have Rachel. So he says, all right, give my older daughter a week and then you can marry Rachel, but you have to stay with me for seven more years. So for some reason that is beyond my understanding, Jacob agrees to this. And um, to Laban's credit, he did finally keep his end of the bargain here, kind of, because Jacob still ends up serving him for far more than seven years, mostly because every time he, he says later on that he felt like he couldn't leave without Laban causing a scene. So they end up slipping out of under cover of darkness later on, but he ends up serving Laban way longer than he should have in the first place. And anyway, what happens next is just downright crazy pandemonium. I mean, the two women are constantly at odds with one another. Leah keeps getting pregnant and having children. Rachel is unable to do so. And that causes a rift. And the fact that Jacob still loves Rachel more than Leah, Leah is in this predicament where she is constantly trying to win her husband's affections and is unable to do so. And she keeps thinking, well, this time I've got it. Well, this time I've got it over and over again. And um, she gets caught in this, this, this trap that we often get caught in ourselves where we think that we can earn affection with people and you get caught in a loop that way. Verses 30 and 31 say, and he went in also unto Rachel and he loved also Rachel more than Leah and served with him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So when we did a little study, we looked at that word hated and um, it can have the connotation that she was literally hated. Um, I don't think that's what it means here. Well, it says up in the verse before um, that he uh, loved also Rachel more than Leah, um, not instead of Leah or, you know, it, it lends itself to make you think he had something in his heart for Leah. It wasn't complete disdain. Yeah. And he had lived with Laban and he'd been around this family. So he knew her. He knew her well. Um, they were at least strong acquaintances, if not I mean, friends. Technically, she was his family. <laughs> yeah. Even outside yeah. of marriage. Yeah. And so I think he did care for her, but he obviously is completely infatuated with Rachel in a way that he is not with Leah. And so the word hated there, I don't think is meaning that he literally hates her in the sense that we would use it today. I think it's used in the same sense that it's used in other places in the scripture, like when Jesus says, no one can follow me except he hate his father and mother and his children. And Jesus is obviously not saying that we should hate our families because he teaches the opposite all throughout the Bible. Um, but it's saying in comparison, um, it is like that. And that is the way we can think of the way that Leah felt like she was being treated. It's not that Jacob was actually treating her like he hated her, but she felt like because of the way he looks at Rachel, because of the way he talks about Rachel and talks to Rachel and flirts with Rachel, and she feels like she's hated by comparison. It was obvious Rachel was the desired one, and she was just <laughs> the third wheel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's incredibly uncomfortable. Um Anybody who's been a chaperone on a double on, on a date that's not a double date, you know, you're you're the third wheel. It's awkward, right? Like it's not a position anybody wants to be in. It's definitely not a position you want to be in within a marriage, right? Yeah. But I I also want to just pause for a second here and say there are people who feel like the third wheel in their marriage because their spouse is interested in something else. So it's interesting even approaching this couple because I highly doubt that anyone that we are speaking to is currently in a marriage. Um, where there is one husband and two wives. Well, it's still illegal as far as I know. <laughs> Everywhere, but what, is it Utah? <laughs> but um, no, so anyway, you know, that that was an angle that just doesn't even apply. But there is still so much that we can glean from looking at this. The 
concept that I wanted you to keep in mind is obviously you can't be married to more than one person, but you can treat something as if it's your spouse or someone as if they're in the place of the, taking the affection away from the person that you're married to. Um, the easiest ones that come to mind is things like the job, the kids, uh, sports, whatever it is. Choices, yeah. Whatever it, this entertainment, whatever it is that, really. yeah, yeah. I think for, for men, it has a tendency to be work, kids and entertainment for women. It can have a tendency to be friends and work or something like that. Um, but it could be anything. And that thing is dividing the attention that you should be placing on your spouse and taking it and giving it to something else. And so in this case, like Leah, that spouse, whether that's you or your spouse, is looking on at you in in a in a sort of a jealousy that you're spending and focusing so much energy on something to the neglect of them. Um Something like, you know, you have no trouble talking to your friends at work, but you won't say 10 words to me when you get home. Um, those kinds of conversations can happen within a marriage because our priorities can be misplaced. And that's what we're seeing between Jacob and Leah. Although Jacob's scenario is different in that he has two spouses, um, he is neglecting her and he's being unfair to her. Taking this just to kind of the next level as far as a divided attention and affection um, Jacob was somewhat present with Leah physically. Obviously, she has, you know, children. So he was at least with her in that way several times. Um, but it seems very clear that he was absent mentally and emotionally. And, and spiritually. Think, yeah. And we can even take that and what Simeon was talking about. We probably aren't struggling with that in our marriage as far as another person that is dividing the attention and the affection. Um, but even in these other things, you know, even if you are there physically, if you're physically present with your spouse, but yet mentally or spiritually you're not engaged with them, um, that is a level here too where they're literally having to vie for your affection and your attention in those areas. And it should not be in a marriage because what does God say in the very beginning? In Genesis, I mean, here we are in Genesis, later in Genesis, but let's look back to the beginning when God first created the first marriage. He established them to be one. The two were to be joined together to be one in body, in soul, in spirit. We just recently talked about this a little bit on a Q&A episode. Um, but if you are there physically, but you're not engaged emotionally and spiritually, or any of that is off balance, then there's something's out of whack in your marriage because you're not one as God intended. Yeah, and I think one of the most telling things about this relationship is you can read going forward from the verses that Brittany just read all the way towards the end of that chapter, Genesis 29. Um, in verse 34, she has another son. This is her third time. And she says, now this time will my husband be joined unto me. That word joined has to do with glued or cemented. It's found all throughout the scripture. Um, it's used in the New Testament when it's talking about people joining a church. Um, that word joined there is something that should already be true because they're married, right? They should already be joined. And yet she's talking about it after she's born this man three sons, saying, because I've born him three sons, he'll be joined unto me. Surely this time it's going to work. It didn't work the first two times, but surely this time it's going to work. And um, so that's just the kind of cracked and fragmented marriage that they had. They they were not one joined together in that regard. Um, she does have a glimpse of hope in the next verse where she bears a fourth son, um, Judah. And it says in verse 35, now will I praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And it says, and left bearing. So it almost seems like she, with this fourth child, finally kind of just gives it over to the Lord. And it says that she leaves bearing. So I don't know if that means that she just stopped having kids or that she stopped trying. Um, it seemed very much like she was badgering Jacob, like, sleep with me. I want to have a kid so that you'll love me. Yeah. And she gets the three, but then she has the fourth. And we almost find contentment here. It's momentary. 
Um, it's about to flare up again. Here we'll talk about it in just a minute. But it's almost like she finds a new satisfaction, a new peace, a new just resolve that I'm okay with where I'm at. Um, now that can only be found in Christ, which is what we see reflected in her naming her son Judah. And it's so interesting to me that Judah is actually in the lineage of Christ. So, you know, zooming in, narrowing in on this messed up relationship, this loveless relationship, this woman who felt so unseen and unloved, what she could have never known in that moment, in all of those embarrassing moments, in the moments where they are going to celebrations and going to town, and it's obvious that Rachel is the favored one, and here strides Leah in, you know, just steps behind. Um, that really God is doing something on the broad scale of human history. And he is using Leah to give birth out of this loveless marriage to Judah, who is in the lineage of Christ, who through that line will bring about the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who will be the ultimate revelation of what true love really is. But unfortunately, that... um that contentment is short-lived because Rachel comes up with a scheme in the next chapter whereby she begs Jacob for children. And Jacob gets angry at her. It says that his anger was kindled towards her, which is interesting because the only thing it's ever said about his affections towards Rachel is positive until this moment. So they're both nagging him constantly. (laughs) Leah's nagging him constantly because he won't pay attention to her. And Rachel's nagging him constantly because she can't have kids. And she's blaming him in this verse for her not having children. Well, when you're trying to find your fulfillment and your identity in something that was never intended to supply it. Yeah. You're never going to be, it's never going to be satiated. You're never going to be filled. And they're trying to find their identity in Jacob. Both of them are. Um, And you can't find your identity in a spouse. You can't find your identity in another human being. You can only find your identity in the person of Christ. And you can't even find, you know, the ultimate acceptance and love and all of that in a spouse either. That that needs to come from Christ first, and that tr- should trickle over into your marriage. But that's what they're looking for in this. Yeah, and they're looking for something that can't possibly satisfy them. Jacob cannot satisfy them. Children, obviously, are not satisfying or is not satisfying Leah at this point. Rachel thinks that that's going to be the solution to her problems, and it's not. You know, and unfortunately, it's almost like her children are kind of pawns in this one-up. Yeah. You know? It's reflected in the names. It's reflected in the struggle. Later, we'll see Reuben getting the mandrakes for Leah. I mean, it, it just became something that infected their entire family atmosphere. So Rachel devises this scheme, and she's going to give her handmaid to... Jacob and Jacob is supposed to sleep with this handmaid and provide a child for Rachel, which is weird for us. Um, that was kind of customary. In fact, that's exactly what Sarah did with Abraham. She gave him her handmaid and that's how we got Ishmael. Right? So it was normal in that culture, but it wasn't right. And so they have decided essentially to, try and supersede God's authority here. Cause Jacob actually says in verse two, am I in God's stead who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? So Jacob calls her out and says, you haven't bore children because God ordained that. And she keeps pushing him on this and she gives him the handmaid and to his discredit, he gives in and the handmaid has a child. And then you know, Rachel's think, upset about it. <laughs> you think he would have remembered, whoa, this happened with grandma. Yeah. And it did not go over it well. It <laughs> did not go well. It did not go well but at all. No. Nope. He didn't learn. And um Rachel, the same thing happens. Rachel gets upset because a handmaid conceives. But then, crazy enough, she gives Billa to Jacob again and she conceives again. And so Rachel is starting, and then in verse number eight, it says, Rachel said with Great wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. So poor Leah, I mean, the one thing she had on her sister is now basically disappearing. And she's 
beginning to, she should begin to understand that she was right to just be happy with what she had after she had Judah, but she doesn't. And she gives her handmaid to Jacob. I mean, Jacob, I I think they just literally wore this man down. Like (laughs) he just had no patience whatsoever for it anymore and just gave in. And, um, so yeah, then she has a bunch of kids, uh, with the, or he has a bunch of kids with the handmaid. And so there's just this conglomerate of children who are all supposedly Leah and Rachel's, but biologically are not. And there's just, it's just, it's craziness. It's craziness. In verse 15, Rachel says, and she said unto her, is it a small matter that thou hast taken my husband and wouldest thou take away my son's mandrakes also? So this is, I'm sorry, this is Leah speaking to Rachel because Rachel wants these mandrakes that her son has because there's a cultural significance behind that. They believed that the mandrakes were going to give some kind of fertility, kind of a superstition thing. Um, as we find out later in the story, they were very, at least Laban and them when they were in Laban's house were idol worshipers. And so there's a lot of odd stuff going on in this family. So Rachel, you know, is, is trying to get these mandrakes and she strikes a deal that she can have, Jacob for the night, because obviously that was in Rachel's power to do because Jacob loved her more. And so Leah gives her the mandrakes so that she can have the fertility blessing and goes in onto Jacob. And guess what? Leah ends up pregnant again. And that just makes the whole situation worse. In verse 20, Leah says, God hath endued me with a good dowry. Now will my husband dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So we we have that old habit creeping back up again. Here's the the lesson I wanted to bring up from that is that we have to be incredibly careful not to think that we've conquered old sins. You're not past doing the same thing you did before. And that's exactly what happens with her. She had a moment of satisfaction. And that moment was short-lived as soon as Rachel seemed to be quote unquote winning again. And she just couldn't take it. She couldn't take that. Rachel had all the affection. And to be frank, I don't know what I'd do in that situation. Like she was in a bad spot and it was horribly unfair and she was horribly mistreated. Um, but it was the situation that she was in. And there was a brief period where she was happy to just let the Lord do what he was going to do. And the Lord had blessed her. The Bible says specifically at the end of the last chapter that the Lord was giving her children as a blessing because of the neglect that she was going through. So the Lord was seeing her and was blessing her in ways that she was not using to be grateful for, but rather to she was using them as weapons against her rival. One of the other things about this particular story that is interesting, too, is that God gave the marriage bed to the couple for a purpose. It's meant to have a significance. It's meant to be the physical joining of what God has put together in spirit and soul and in body there. That body portion of it is what the marriage bed is for. And this story is a gross abuse of that marriage bed, both with on. Yeah. The, the, the sexual appetite that's supposed to exist on a natural basis between man and wife is now being used in the most worldly of fashions you can imagine. Today, people use it in the sense of just sheer pleasure with no consequences. And that's where we get things like abortion. And in this day and age, they weren't using it for no consequences. They were using it for the consequence. They wanted the children. And it was using it in a very selfish way. Yeah. Sex is really to be other focused. Um, you know, that's how God intended it. And that's how you get the most fulfillment out of it is when you are desiring to love your spouse for them, not for what you can get out of it. But here we see them just manipulating it as a tool to get what I want, what I need. And again, like we've said all throughout this episode, they never did. Mm-hmm. And God even designed the, the not to get gross, but God even designed the actual 
organs of the human body to operate properly when both parties are being satisfied with one another. I mean, that's how the whole thing works. So to manipulate and to twist the act of sexual intercourse in this way is, is a gross misuse of what God gave to the marriage. That's supposed to be a blessing. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be pleasurable for both parties. And instead Jacob is annoyed with everybody and they're just in it to get babies and it's no fun for anyone. And the whole time, no one is enjoying themselves. There's no pleasure in it. And it's, it's used as a cudgel against the other person constantly. And, you know, we talked about it last time, but Paul talks about not defrauding one another. Well, in this case, it's the opposite. I mean, they're forcing Jacob into situations that he doesn't want to be in, but he's giving in because he's tired of dealing with it. And um, so it's just bad all around. It's not meant to be used as a weapon. It's meant to be something that comes naturally from the affection you have for one another. And this is exactly the opposite of that. Well, and it's really sad too. We tend to see such a negative relationship between Jacob and Leah. And automatically we think, that's in reflection of the positive relationship between Jacob and Rachel. But as you're digging in, I don't think it's positive. It does not seem loving and warm, even with Jacob and Rachel, because yes, though he may love her and she loves him back, there is still, even in the most intimate of moments together, it comes across like Jacob is just trying to shut up these women who will not leave him alone and give them what they want so he can move on. And Rachel is just there so that she can one up her sister. Like where is the love and the union and the holiness that God designed in this part of marriage? It's not there. It's not there between Jacob and Leah, but it's also not there between Jacob and Rachel. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's sad. It's really sad, in fact, because what could have been a beautiful union between Jacob and Rachel was ruined. What could have been a rough start, but perhaps a fulfilling marriage in Jacob and Leah is ruined. And you can blame both on Laban, but the truth is, as messed up as a three-way marriage goes, there could have been some semblance of happiness in this family. Um, even with the really rocky and rough start, because God is able to make beautiful things out of ugly and broken things. He is. And unfortunately, we don't really see that. We do see, over the course of Jacob's life, significant spiritual growth in his own life. Um, We hadn't gotten to it in this, and we probably just don't have time to, but um, Jacob eventually does leave Laban's house. Most of this childbearing stuff takes place while they're still in the land with Laban. And eventually Jacob does leave Laban again by tricking him out of a bunch of cattle. Um, But when he finally does leave, he still isn't really leading his family spiritually. He begins to finally take ownership of his family physically, um, but he's still not really leading his family spiritually. And that's why you get things like, Rachel stealing her father's idol and then sitting on it and lying about it and all that kind of stuff because they're not being brought along spiritually. Jacob himself seems to be growing spiritually throughout that time and after that. Um, But he never really comes across like he leads his family spiritually well. And that even is reflected in the lives of his sons and how they deal with Joseph later on. Um, with them throwing him in a pit and lying to their dad and deceiving him again. And so that trend of deceit just goes all the way through his life. He's on the deceiving end and he's on the being deceived end um, several times throughout his story. But there does, while there does seem to be some spiritual growth in Jacob's life himself, he does a very poor job of bringing his family along. And I think there's a warning in there that his Poor spiritual leadership has huge repercussions on his family later. And as a man, I just, I feel like I have to say, men, that you are responsible for the spiritual temperature of your home. That is not your wife's job. That is not your children's job. That is not your parents' job or her parents' job. It is your job. And 
that leaving and cleaving part you find in Genesis chapter 3 and 2 and 3 applies to you, uh, and it applies to me. We have to lead our families, not just physically, not just monetarily, but spiritually as well. And his failure to do so causes so much trouble in his marriages and with his children and in the future. So that's just a lesson to be found there. I'm thinking of the verse. I cannot remember the reference. I'll have to put it down in the comments. Um, But I say it to my children often, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. God, we, we talked about this just a bit ago. God designed the marriage to be one. I mean, you can't get more united than one. There's, It's just one. Mm-hmm. So the two are to become one. But that goes, trickles down and affects your home, your children. Um, you know, it should continue on as your legacy goes forth. And, um, you know, I know we talked early at the beginning about, uh, you know, okay, our attentions probably aren't divided between more than one spouse, but the other things. But I think it's so important here just to remember that even between a man and a wife, just the two, to be one, to have that unity that is found only in Christ, um, because it it can have such a positive impact for good on your marriage, on your home, on your children, or it can have the reverse. And then one other thing that stood out to me, actually, it just came to mind while you were talking about something a minute ago, Sam, but when we were talking about Leah being so unloved and shouldn't Jacob have learned from his grandmother Sarah's example with Hagar and everything, um, I just wanted to say here to the person who maybe, maybe you're listening to this alone, you know, we've designed these to be listened to as a couple. You don't have to, but that was the intention, and we would love for that method of listening to then spur you to study and to glean together as a couple. Um, But maybe you're listening to it alone because you're in one of these relationships. Your husband won't listen. He, you know, not just he won't listen to this podcast episode with you, but you don't have that oneness. You don't have that union where you want to grow together. You want to mature together. You want to deepen in your love together. Um, And I can't imagine what a difficult place that that is to be, to be in a relationship that should be really outside of Christ, the most fulfilling and intimate relationship that a human experiences, and yet to have that be so broken. But something that came to mind that I just want to say here to encourage maybe that person that is listening, you know, like we said, Leah had no idea in the moment of her hurt and her sorrow and her neglect what God was doing in the grand scheme of things. We talked about Judah. We talked about the lineage of Christ. We talked about all of that. But let's rewind back to another story and look at Hagar. Hagar also was a pawn. Sex was used as a means to an end to get what I wanted, what Sarah wanted. Um, And Hagar was caught in the middle of all of that. And we find Hagar not in a loving marriage not in a marriage where she is cherished and valued as God designed. I mean, Simeon said before on the podcast, God designed men to love the the wife, their wives, as Christ loved the church. We don't see that. Hagar didn't even get a, a wedding. You know, she or she's just flung at Abraham mm-hmm. to fulfill Sarah's need. Okay, so what's the fallout of that? Well, they get the baby. Sarah takes the baby and completely scorns Hagar. Mm-hmm. Abraham has no affection for her. Where do we find Hagar? We find Hagar fleeing out into the desert with her baby Ishmael, cast out. Um, You know, really the ultimate rejection here, just tossed out like trash. Worse than that, she's not tossed out until Sarah has a baby. Yeah. They they were going to keep the baby until Sarah had a baby. Then they didn't want the baby anymore, you know? Exactly. But this this is what came to mind. This is the message for the person who is just in in the middle of a heartbreak of a loveless marriage. God saw Hagar. Nobody else did, but God did. And God loved her so much that he reached down and saved not only the life of Hagar, but the life of her child. And we know the repercussions that came from that child. I mean, look at all of the problems that have come from the Islamic religion God knew, God God could see beginning from end. 
Yet his love for Hagar was so intense that he was willing to meet her in the middle of that brokenness and save her, and not just save her, but save the only other person that she had in the world, her son, full well knowing everything that would come from that, but yet having such a heart of love for Hagar that he wanted her to know you are not invisible. You are seen and you are loved. That That is amazing to me. We see a similar thing in the life of Leah in that the Bible says that God gave her children because she was neglected. And that was his way of letting her know, you're not alone. You're not on your own. I'm here. I'm giving you good gifts. The Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord and an heritage of the Lord. So he was giving her signs and things that he loves her, that he wants to help her, he would take care of her. And Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob may not take care of her, but God was going to. And that's what she got just a tiny glimpse of with her fourth son, Judah, when she finally said, I will praise the Lord. She, she for a moment, got a glimpse of that, that, you know what, the Lord is blessing and that's enough. It didn't last long, but she did have a glimpse of it. And so I would say that for someone who is struggling in a loveless marriage, or you feel like it's a loveless marriage, God is still giving good gifts to you. And it is important that you focus on those things. It's also important that you fulfill your side of the marriage vow, which I don't feel like Leah did. It's not your responsibility to fulfill the other person's obligation. It is your responsibility to fulfill your own obligation. And the Bible says in the New Testament, um, the Apostle Paul writes that in doing so, you might save the other party. The other party, even if they're already a Christian, they might come around because you're doing your part and you're being the Christian and you're living the life that you're supposed to live and treating them the way you're supposed to, even without reciprocation. And that is e- way easier said than done. I understand that. Um, and I'm not, I don't, you know, I'm thank the Lord I'm not in that situation. But that doesn't, just because the other person isn't fulfilling their end, doesn't mean that you shouldn't fulfill yours. And that's that's a very difficult thing to say. It's a very difficult thing to do. And it's important for you then that you surround yourself with good, strong, godly Christian people who can encourage you when things are especially hard and can help you work through some of those things. Ultimately, we just always need to remember to never require or expect something from a spouse that they cannot fulfill. Yeah. Leah could not find her identity in Jacob. She could not find ultimate acceptance in Jacob. She could not find unconditional, unending agape love in Jacob. All of that was found only in Christ. And there were glimpses where her heart was aligned, and we see that. Um, But again, we, we have to choose. It's a daily, sometimes moment by moment choice to keep truth over lies. Mm-hmm. And we see, you know, as, as Leah battled that in her own heart, there were victories and there were losses. Um, But it is so important Whatever your marriage looks like, you know, with scale of one to ten, it's always important to for for all of us, even if you're not married, to find our fulfillment first and foremost in God and in His love, and then if you're married, to try to reflect that yeah. in the love that you have for your spouse. Yeah, I just have to think: how often is Christ disappointed with His spouse? And yet he is always faithful to it, mm. always faithful to the church, always taking care of us. Like Hosea going after Gomer over and over and over again, he's always faithful to the church. Even when we don't reciprocate his love, even when we don't treat him the way that he deserves to be treated, even when we are not fulfilling our end of the agreement to be his spouse, he still is doing all of the things that he is supposed to be doing as a husband to his, his bride. And I like that comparison. There is a meekness to his love that we don't see in Leah as the spouse. You know, meekness is not weakness. I've heard it said before. So meekness is just a a quiet, a calm spirit, a very steady. And we see that in Christ. 
He has every right to come at us shouting, you know, I've, I've deserved your love. I've earned your love. I've, I've died for your love. Hey, I'm over here. Pay attention to me. But no, we just see him so, so sweetly and tenderly always wooing us to himself. So I know this is an emotionally gripping one. It's one that'll probably have you thinking on it for a little while and just really feeling sad for these people that just struggled in so many aspects of their home life. Um, And, you know, it, it didn't stop. It just went straight on to having so many problems with their children. Um... But there are lessons that we can learn from this couple. At the end of Leah's life, we find her being buried. Jacob buries her in the place with his family, with his parents, with his grandparents. These, um, you know, giants of the faith as we see them now. And Leah is laid right there with them. Um, Rachel isn't at the end of the story. And, you know, that's just a whole nother rabbit trail here. But... I, I just, I think really just one of the most important takeaways for this is really just overarching. You know, I feel like each couple kind of has its theme. And this one is really just a glimpse at a marriage where it is just loveless. And there's a spouse who feels so neglected and lonely. Yet Christ was in the midst of it all, working in spite of it all. And he was trying to show Leah just how much he truly cared for her. Um, so anyway, hopefully this was encouraging to you. Like we said, uh, don't take our word for it. Go and read these passages down below. I've uh, listed the different scriptures that we referenced in this study. Um, But study it out as a couple. See what God has to show you about it. I'd love to hear if you have things that you want to share that you learned. You can email me at nohighercallingpodcast at gmail.com. You can always find me on Instagram at nohighercalling underscore. But thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We look forward to being back with you guys on the next No Higher Calling Family episode. I hope that the No Higher Calling podcast has been a blessing to you. If so, please subscribe, share with your friends, and engage with me on Instagram at nohighercalling underscore. You can also subscribe to receive the No Higher Calling encouragement email on my website, which is www.nohighercalling.org. This includes podcast notes, what I'm reading, spiritual encouragement, a glimpse into my home, and some of my favorite products and resources. You can also enjoy more content on the No Higher Calling YouTube channel. I pray that this podcast will encourage you to fall more in love with Jesus and to be the Christian woman he's called you to be. Thanks for listening.